This is the Country Hour on ABC Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to the Queensland Country Hour. Madeline McCosker with you this lunch hour. Today, fisheries. Uh, Fishers, rather, in the Gulf say they're worried a proposal from the state government would close a large part of the Gulf fishery to gill netting. One local fisher says it would be devastating to the local industry. uh, It'd become unviable for us to continue. It'd be like a cattle station grazing all their cattle in one paddock. It wouldn't take long to eat all the grass out. Also in the next hour, if disasters ever cause shortages on supermarket shelves, a team of passionate volunteers on the Sunshine Coast are set to support local food security with a precious seed bank of hardy and heirloom variety vegetables. Uh, And we'll head to the northwest where Australia's first ever all-women's rodeo was held over the weekend. That and more before 1pm. Starting today's show, we're paying tribute to one of the greats. Adrian Scott was an ABC rural reporter of 30 years who has died this morning in Toowoomba. He was 90 years old and one of the very few to be awarded an NBE and an OAM. Adrian Scott was very highly regarded and worked in the Cairns office up until 1973 before transferring to the Toowoomba office where he spent another 25 years. We've had many people contact contact us today to share their sympathies and fond memories. Agronomist Paul McIntosh shared some with me earlier this morning. Oh, simple. Listening to him on the radio uh, most days, I, I, it's just been the main, most of us have uh, heard Adrian and got to know Adrian over the years. And uh, it's uh, certainly, he was a big part of country life. Um, if it, you weren't listening to the radio when Adrian Scott was on. You were obviously out of the country sort of stuff. He was a very important part of the rural scene and you caught up on all your information that Adrian talked about on the radio for all those 25-odd years, I think. What are some of your fond memories, I guess, of that time and, and hearing him on the radio? Well, Adrian didn't suffer fools gladly. That's one thing I do know. So if you haven't got anything constructed, so you didn't didn't get too much of a go on on Adrian Scott's program, that's for sure. But, you know, what was that saying, uh, Maddie? we were talking to before about... Uh, there's God, uh, the weather, and then there's Adrian Scott. They're all three major principles that you need to adhere to in our in our real life. That's for sure. <laughs> a very obviously a very big, big figure, I guess, at that time in in rural life, and obviously he he was a very well known and, and very valued person in that part of the world. Absolutely, he really led the charge and all those things in the real radio parts of the ABC, and 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 all the girls, all your girls and, and gentlemen from then carried it on very nicely. And maybe got some legacy, that's for sure. So, big part of the uh, the real scene and a big part of a lot of people's lives, uh, particularly the older generation like myself who knew Adrian quite well from his voice coming out of that radio, that quiet, steady voice that we all loved, that, that calmness when things are not going so good uh, out on the farm. It's always good to listen to Adrian Scott. And the rural ABC team is thinking of Adrian's wife, Heather, and his children, Megan and Perry. The Gulf of Carpentaria Commercial Fishers Association chairman says the Queensland government is telling them a large part of the Gulf fishery could be closed to gill netting. Earlier this year, the federal and state governments announced they would phase out the use of gill nets in the Great Barrier Reef. Kurumba net fisherman David Wren says closing off most of the eastern gulf would make his enterprise uneconomical. So what they're proposing, we got presented with this map. So it, it's, it's saying that it's going to close all 
rivers and creeks in uh, the Gulf of Carpentaria, and then they're going to take a huge, massive section from Cape York all the way down to the Holroyd River, which will be a total net ban. So basically, um, nearly half half of the Gulf will be closed to commercial netting. What will that mean in terms of businesses like yours? If they close all of the rivers, that's that's the that'll be the end of the, uh, all barramundi fishing, net fishing in the Gulf of Carpentaria. If they take that area, um, area ten that they're uh, proposing to close, they're taking half of our allowed fishing area, and uh, it'd become unviable for us to to continue. It'd be like uh, a cattle station grazing all their cattle in one paddock. It wouldn't take long to eat all the grass out. So Area 10, for the audience that aren't looking at the map, it's effectively half of the Gulf of Carpentaria, or very close to it, from the tip of Cape York on the western side down to Cape Kiawea. There'd be no netting whatsoever allowed, is what's being proposed? That's what's being proposed, yes. What are the main fish caught in that area? Barramundi, uh, king salmon and grey mackerel. But there still remains, it seems, on this map, quite a large area where you could net. Um, That's correct. Couldn't but, everyone just go in there with their net? Uh, I've tried to explain it as in a, a cattleman throwing all his cows in one paddock. They'll, they'll just desecrate it. it. It just doesn't work that way. What will this mean for a business like yours? You're employing about 50 people. The area 10 is obviously a huge importance to rent fishing. With the closure of, of that area, rent fishing is effectively shut down. It'll be uneconomical for us to keep fishing. And that would mean... There's 600,000 kilos of protein, which is that grey mackerel. So you consider the 600,000 kilos, convert that to 100 gram portions. That's 6 million portions of fish that will not go into the Cairns and Townsville and Mackay regions. What's the reason that they, they're telling well, you? Um, they're responding to the UNESCO assessment of the East Coast. So... They say that the, um, the turtles, the rays, the dugongs, everyone, when they come around the Cape York, they need a large area to have a rest and, and no netting. Uh, the uh, N3 closure, is, uh, they're saying, is all about sustainability. So the N3 is the barramundi fishery. And sustain- when, you, when they use the term sustainability, does that mean that they think that there aren't enough barramundi in the Gulf to sustain the current netting operations? Is that the term? Yes, that's correct. So is there any evidence or proof when you look at the catch records that you, you're fishing the barramundi out of existence in the Gulf? No, that's the other side of it, is that there's been no, no harvest strategies done. There's been no uh, stock assessments done, which is DAF's got to do all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, they, they brought out a, um, a stock assessment on the, um, on the king salmon and they're saying that it's as low as 5%. Uh, all fish, we all disagree with that because in the last, you know, three or four years have been uh, phenomenal uh, seasons. This year has been a phenomenal season uh, for um, barramundi, king salmon, grey mackerel. It seems to not add up to what they're telling us. Karumba net fisherman David Wren speaking there with Adam Stevens and the Queensland Government has been contacted for comment. It is 13 minutes past 12. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. 
And to the news that broke over the weekend, much to the delight of the live cattle export industry, an Australian cattle uh, sorry, Australian cattle producers will be able to resume live cattle and buffalo trade with Indonesia after Australia agreed to extra biosecurity measures. Indonesia implemented a ban on live cattle and buffalo producers on 30th of July this year after 13 Australian cattle allegedly arrived in the country with lumpy skin disease. This ban affected four export yards, two in WA, one in the Territory and one in Queensland, the Dalrymple sale yards at Charters Towers. Frank Beveridge, Mayor of the Charters Towers Regional Council, told Lucy Cooper after five weeks of dealing with the ban, the council now has a clear path forward. We'll see the process start once again. It has been rather irritating and it's always a a bit of a challenge, these things. We can only do the very best we can on the ground here and have um, have an open, transparent system where we have uh, one of the best management practices of of animals, certainly beef animals in the world. So um, so we stand by our protocols. Um, We're keen to put this behind us and get the uh, industry up and running once again and uh, certainly to Indonesia, who are our biggest customers in that area. It has been five weeks and here in Charters Towers, were people quite annoyed over the length of time? Uh, initially, we were hearing things of a week or two, but it's, it's, it's really dragged on. I mean, assuming money's been lost... Yeah, look, we find this particularly irritating, especially in region Australia. You know, there's vets all the way along, all the way along this industry. Um, there's people on the ground everywhere. It's not like you suddenly have to put something in place. Everything is in place, and uh, we've found it really irritating. Uh, the beef industry is a massive wage payer in Australia. Uh, the federal government does well, the state government does well, and every regional area that um, depends on it. We, we need a slightly more pref- professional approach from our from our, um, our destinations where that um, product going and to, to ensure that it flows through. This, this, has, been, um, this has been really um, a bit of a pain. And looking at the agreement between the Australian government and Indonesian government and how Indonesia essentially said, yes, we'll we'll start taking exports out of Australia. That all came to because the Australian government's agreed to some extra things. So they said they'll uh, increase surveillance on ground of animals for lumpy skin disease. There'll be visual checks of of cattle before they go on to live export ships. And they'll also host a delegation of um, Indonesian officials to Australia to inspect the export yards. Are they new measures or have you had things like that happen here before or are they already happening? Um, look, these things have always happened, South Lucy. Um, I've heard there'll be some more surveillance audits in place. Um, I personally met the Indonesian Agricultural Minister in Brisbane at a conference two months ago, and I personally invited him to Charters Towers. So, so we welcome people to come and have a look at our clean, clean green beef. Um, we are second to none in the world with beef management practices. So certainly we're happy for them to um, bring in these few extra little bits and pieces. But um, it's just irritating in the big scene, Lucy. Um, we continue to have a really good management system on the ground. Uh, this five weeks really didn't need to happen. But look, let's get things on foot. Let's get the, uh, the cattle flowing again and make it happen. No doubt people will be keen to get some orders up and going. Have, do you know, are you aware of any that have been in place or what, what happens now really? Uh, what happens now is, um, of course, the industry is in constant flux and as the price of cattle reduces, uh, we see live export becoming more and more attractive and we're at that point now where uh, we think the floodgates will open once again and uh, you'll see some big orders coming into North Queensland. We've been 
chatting about this for a number of weeks. We've been touching base. It's been uncertain at times, um, not knowing what's really going on. When this all happened, and now that we can kind of look back on it, were you surprised it happened given the efforts that you've put in on behalf of Charters Towers Regional Council to ensure that you guys have a strong relationship with Indonesia and, and as you said, invited them out here before? Um, yeah, look, I was surprised. Um, when I presented in Brisbane at the Indonesian Export Conference, um, there was a bit of um, discussion on stage. We had a, an open chair session and we talked about um, some of the challenges, especially with the live export ban in 2011. And um, while that caused a huge amount of pain to Indonesia, it uh, caused far more pain to the graziers and farmers in North Queensland. As I said to them, you know, Australians didn't have to suffer and we had this ridiculous situation where the people on the ground have the right product here in Australia. We have the people in Indonesia that need our product and then overlaying this, we have this unfortunate politics which seems to get in the way. But the, uh, the drive from us to get our product out of our country into theirs and their need for it will not wane. We just have to deal with these other complications that get thrown up from time to time. Frank Beveridge is the Mayor of the Chartist Towers Regional Council. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. If disasters ever cause shortages on supermarket shelves, groups of passionate volunteers are set to support local foods, food security with a precious seed bank of hardy and heirloom variety vegetables. And as Jennifer Nichols reports, one of the most appealing things about the National Seed Library movement is that people can pick up seeds for free. So people can come in and choose something to grow. There's pumpkin seeds in here at the moment, different types of lettuce. There's also flowering things like zinnia, cosmos. Gathered in their local library, Saltus Corley has rallied a passionate bunch of people who are focused on feeding their community for free. They're sorting and labelling seeds gathered from local vegetable gardens. I love what people write on the packets, like that's yellow happy marrow. Happy marrow, <laughs> so lovely. And they are, they're really cheery. The volunteers are providing food for thought on how to buck the system and bypass big hardware stores and imported seed. Mulaney in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland joined the seed library movement in January 2023. Oh, I think it's a fabulous program and offers so many opportunities for people to get involved with gardening that perhaps may not have ventured into the garden before. Carleen Fitzgerald is one of the volunteers. It just enables us to share this precious resource of seeds and ensure that future generations have lots of wonderful choice when it comes to produce and eating healthy things. Saltus Corley coordinated the trials at Mullaney and Kiwana Libraries. There's always a variety of things in here and we try to keep it stocked. And a lot of what you find in here is what's gone to seed this season. Visitors can take up to two packets of seed for free. Lettuce or tomatoes. Tomatoes and lettuce. And deposit seeds as well. This is um, amaranth seed, but it hasn't been winnowed yet. So it's still full of all the fluffy seed pods. Yeah, we've had almost 3,000 seed packets taken from our libraries. Katrina Nielsen from Sunshine Coast Libraries is happy that a six-month trial for the Seed Library was so successful that the program's been extended. Um, And all the feedback that we've received has been really great. And yeah, people wanted it more libraries. It's a really great response. This is Shiso Perilla and it's grown for its delicious leaf, which some people say has the taste of Japan. 
It's used a lot in Asian cooking. By collecting hardy local and heirloom vegetable seeds from their gardens, the volunteers are reducing Australia's heavy reliance on imported seeds to produce a wide range of crops, including vegetables. Those imports bring increased biosecurity risks as the spread of seed-borne pathogens expand globally. Import requirements include regular testing and treatment of seed using techniques like being heated or coated with fungicides. People don't realise that we import so much seed. And the thing with the import of all that seed is that seed gets treated. For anyone wanting to have an organic status, they no longer can. So the importance of maintaining seed strains of existing species in a non-chemically treated way grows and grows. Gardening Australia host Costa Georgiadis says seed libraries make sense. I think it's really important that these seed libraries are maintained so that people that do not want their seeds pre-treated with pre-emergent chemicals so that that's the first thing that the plant experiences is a chemical as soon as it breaks out of the seed. You know, these are choices that people should be able to keep. And the only way that's going to be kept is if those seeds are maintained in seed libraries, those seeds adapt and adjust to your microclimate and your part of the world. And having a seed library illustrates to non-gardeners, illustrates to non-farmers, illustrates to anyone that we can be the custodians of our future food security by having seed banks in our local community so that if something happens, as we saw a few years ago, and there's a drought or floods or a combination of both or a pandemic and panic and all of these things put together, when you have a local seed bank, you have food certainty. For Saltus Corley, the seed library and the monthly harvest swaps she organises are a way to connect with her community and feed people, including her son Oki, with healthy organic food. Yeah. She hopes more people put the idea into practice. The seed libraries work well when the community gets on board, when there's people who are willing to collect the seed and pack it and bring it back to the library for their community. They want to roll it out to more libraries, so they need more people to get involved. Saltus Corley ending that report from Jennifer Nichols. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Peak Body Grain Growers has published a report calling on the federal government to use some of the $500 million earmarked in its National Reconstruction Fund for Agriculture to support domestic fertiliser production. One of the two most common fertilisers used in cropping, uh, Australia is entirely reliant on the import importation of urea and produces only about one third of domestic phosphorus it needs. Uh, Some growers have been caught short by a lack of urea this season, waiting weeks or months for imported product to arrive. Sean Cole, Manager of Rural Affairs and Advocacy at Grain Growers, says while the report predates this season's problems, they highlight the need for domestic production. We had a very good rains in parts of the country, positioning the urea in such a long supply chain, eight to ten weeks, you know, to get a boat in here from, say, the Middle East. Um, It is a long chain. So by the time um, you react, it's often too late. Yeah, the swing in the season definitely has caught some people out. And I suppose back back to the report, it's really looking at ways that government can invest money through, say, the National Reconstruction Fund. 
into projects that um, some, some of which are shovel ready or very close to, particularly in um, phosphorus and potassium. Urea is a bit of a harder one, obviously, with gas prices and things like that being very high here in, in Australia and, and relatively low barriers to entry. We, we import all of our urea from overseas after the, the shutdown of Gibson Island in Queensland, um, which, which was about 15% approximately of all Australia's urea supply. But yes, I think in the report, there's some ideas um, there's some. Uh, there's actually, uh, you know, projects there where we're working on making ure- uh, ammonia on farm from renewable resources. So that that would be a quantum shift. Obviously, it's a long way away, but that would be a quantum shift in the way growers would procure it and make their own um, fertilizer on farm, nitrogen-based fertilizer. That is. And as you said, nitrogen or urea is the, the big one. And, and as things stand, 100% reliant on on imports. I mean, that's a pretty high risk sort of position t- to be in, isn't it? It's a risky place to be. The, the The hardest part is if we currently did make urea in Australia, it would be more expensive than than what we're paying now for imported products. So it's it's definitely a delicate balance between having the ultimate um, insurance package every year and and having the lowest cost possible to make sure growers can can make money. Quite frankly, so the report actually goes through the cost production of each technology: um, urea, uh, uh, phosphorus, and potassium. And, and I suppose it gives people, it puts the tools in people's hands to actually see where we might be headed and, and particularly for government as well to, at a national level, you know, seeing where, where the low-hanging fruit is to, to make some investments or co-investments. And just flicking through the report, some of the statistics that stuck out to me, I think uh, well over 100 million tonnes of nitrogen used annually and I think there was a study done that showed that if nitrogen, if synthetic nitrogen fertiliser was taken out of the market then uh, only half of the current global world population could be sustained from a food production perspective? Yeah, quite frankly, I mean, the, the world would uh, starve without, you know, synthetic nitrogen uh, fertiliser. And uh, obviously we rely heavily at the moment on uh, urea, which is made from natural gas, uh, mostly around the globe. So this transition, as the report points out, has to be very carefully managed to make sure that we can keep feeding the world, keep growers economically viable while moving to a to a, a greener future, I suppose. So it's it's all a balance, and um, that that's something the report really drives home. And but as you've said, with that that high cost of production in Australia, this won't happen. Private industry won't develop as a domestic production without government support. Look, it's um, urea particularly. We do have some projects there. So um, you've got you've got the one in Western Australia that comes online in twenty twenty seven. There's there's one in South Australia as well working on um, getting some production up for for urea as well. So there there's stuff there, but it's a long it's a long relatively long way out. So I suppose there are some levers government can pull potentially to bring that forward. Uh, it, it's probably more difficult with nitrogen based fertilizer, not to say impossible, but there's some low hanging fruit there with um, phosphorus and potassium, particularly with some projects in Western Australia um, that you know might might you know, really benefit from some assistance to, to get that scale and make sure they're competitive with global imports. And do you expect only greater demand for, for fertiliser? Because if, if we look at urea, for example, we've gone from people applying rates, maybe 50 kilos or 100 kilos to the hectare in maybe a canola crop to now people pushing up 200, 300 kilos to the hectare. I mean, and that's happened in yep. a pretty short period. So is demand only going to increase? Yeah, look, I, I can't see us going backward, Angus. I think with the you know the global the global competition to feed the world, um, you know we're seeing more more fertilizer, particularly uh, nitrogen based fertilizer being being needed to feed the world. Agronomic pra- practices as well, 
we, you know, people who are putting 50 out might be looking at doing 200 or, you know, 250 in some parts of the country, depending on conditions. Uh, and going to a dry spell next year, obviously, that's going to potentially ebb and flow if that does come to fruition. Obviously, we hope not, but the, these things do uh, swing around, as, as your listeners know. Um, but yeah, the trend is definitely up, um, you know, and, and that's how we, we feed the world, essentially. And we're, we're definitely in the food basket of Asia for that reason. That was Sean Cole, Manager of Rural Affairs and Advocacy at Grain Growers, speaking with Angus Varley. And uh, before we head to the weather, police are coordinating a land and air search for a missing man in North Queensland. 58-year-old Paul McNabb left his home in Townsville yesterday morning to go shopping and was later spotted in Charters Towers. Officers found his car at the base of Towers Hill around midnight, but a search of the immediate area failed to find him. Police hold concerns for Mr McNabb's well-being as he suffers a heart condition and may be disoriented. And it is uh, 29 minutes past 12 on the Queensland Country Hour, so it's time to check in with the weather. We've got Phelan Hennefee on the line from the Bureau. How are you, Phelan? Good afternoon, dear. Pretty good. Excellent. Glad to hear. So um, I'm going to jump straight in. We've got a few bushfires burning right across the state at the moment. So what are conditions like today for those fireys and community members that are trying to put those out? Yeah, indeed. Brisk southeasterly is in play today as well. So no no significant wind changes, but still quite a sustained southeasterly. So so that that isn't helping conditions. I suppose the plus side is that we're not expecting any significant changes in that wind direction for the rest of the day. But dry conditions to most interior are resulting in elevated fire dangers. We are looking at high fire dangers across parts of the central and northern interior for the rest of today. And these southeasterly winds sticking around for the next few days across uh, across more northern areas. But further south, we'll see the winds turn more to the northeast as we go through the next, uh, after tomorrow and through the latter part of the week. And that's going to mean warmer conditions across more southern areas. Uh, and, and we're seeing some windy conditions along the coast as well as marine wind warning for today and for tomorrow. Is that right? Yeah, that's a, indeed you're you're right. They're very a strong southeasterly and play right through up along the east coast, and you know that's feeding feeding in well inland as well. Most of the shower activity with it are really just confined to the coastal fringes up along parts of the southeast, central, and north tropical coast as well. Little or nothing of that moisture is feeding further inland across the interior. Uh, but yeah, blustery conditions on the coast, gusts 50, 60, even 70 k's an hour along parts of the exposed central coast during the, already this afternoon. And that strong trade flow is going to stick around for the next few days, right the way up to and including Thursday. So strong wind warnings for those central and northeast waters uh, likely to persist up to that time. We will see the winds probably ease a little, though, for the latter part of the week. That's as we go into Friday and into the weekend as well. Ease a touch, but still probably could have um, some strong wind warnings for the far northeast waters. That's the Cooktown and Peninsula waters. And you mentioned there that things are going to start warming up a little bit in the south, but we were all commenting in the office this morning about how cool it's gotten here, particularly in the central west, in the last couple of days in the morning. And I'm not sure what it's like across the rest of the state, but what's led to that cool change and is it sticking around? Yeah, indeed. It was caused by the weather system that moved across the southern half of the state as we went through late last week. It did bring storms in across the southeast. That moved out and then we had a uh, a much fresher airflow flush across most of the interior 
of the state as well. And, you know, daytime or overnight mins down as low as 2 and 3 degrees there across parts of the southern interior and well below average up across parts of the central interior as well. So this fresher airflow is going to stick around for the next few days. It's southeasterly in nature, uh, which means once it comes in across the interior away from the coast, it's pretty dry. But, um, yeah, cool mornings continue, and but warming up in the south as the as the winds become more northeastly to the latter part of this week. But the fresher conditions uh, will hold on, for, so we're not expecting any kind of humidity to return to parts of the south, just some warmer daytime max. And uh, just quickly, uh, can we expect any rain today or tomorrow, Phelan? No, indeed. Uh, nothing in the way of rainfall forecast for the interior for the next seven days. Most of the rainfall very much on the, the coastal fringe with with the shower activity at the moment, and most of that will be the North Tropical Coast and over parts of the southeast as well. And tomorrow, probably a little bit of a pickup in the shower activity across more southeastern areas, but more closer to the coast. Uh, little or nothing that will filter in across the southern interior, but we could get some isolated storm activity in over parts of the Wide Bay, inland parts of Wide Bay, Burnett, and southeast coastal tomorrow. But for the interior, no, no, no rainfall as such on the horizon at this stage. It looks like this dry, drier airflow persisting into next week as well. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that forecast update. Phelan Hannafy from the Bureau of Meteorology there. And it is 26 minutes to one on the Queensland Country Hour. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on your local ABC radio icon to go to the local station page and find our live shows, audio segments, catch-up programs and more. When you think of cask wine, sophistication may not come to mind, but winemakers want consumers to stop with the snobbery. Invented in South Australia's Riverland in 1965, cask wine, or a, ba- a bag in box, is being celebrated as an alternative to glass bottles for its smaller carbon footprint, as well as lower production and freight costs. Ashley Ratcliffe from Terra Farms says he's working with another winemaker to produce his wine in cask after requests from Japanese buyers. I think that's it. You pull that off. You put that in like so. Ah. Look at that. And notice anything different? Nothing. No. Nothing different whatsoever, except for one's in a cardboard box and one's in a, in a glass bottle. There's so many advantages. If you look at all the research on the sustainability of casks over bottle, and not saying that we need to move moving away from bottled wine, but I mean, you only need a glass of that, and it's no wastage. It can sit in the fridge for for months, and it'll be fresh as a daisy. It's great on premise because if you've got wine by the glass, then you don't need to open a bottle or throw a three quarter bottle away. Or if you've got a bottle that's been open for four or five days, of course, it's going to start become oxidised. For on premise, the restaurants and etc., it's a perfect vessel. But the sustainability and the cost saving to people in the industry is amazing. When did you sort of think, let's go to an old invention made here in the Riverland mm-hmm. to sell you wine? Well, um, I mean, Thomas Angove can be thanked for this. And I actually spoke to John about this and I said, have you got any thoughts on the cask wines? And he said, well, look, it's something that we're no longer involved with. He gave me his blessing, which was nice. They had a lot of problems back then. I mean, the early inventors of these vessels, they did all the hard work, learning and making the mistakes and correcting whatever. So, you know, you've got to take your hats off to those people. And I spent three years in Yolumba as the operations manager looking after the two-litre casks there, my last role at Yolumba. So I learned a lot about casks back then. So what I'm seeing now is there's massive savings, it's convenient, 
there's definitely the environmental benefits, which is becoming amplified. More and more and what people want to know how they can do their bit for the environment. So, well, yeah, it's, um, it's exciting. And the packaging looks good. So a lot of this is going to go to Japan, and we're definitely going to make sure that the Riverland, as you said, it's the home of bag and box cast wine is going to get its fair share. Is there sort of a figure on a, a percentage or a, or a saving that you are aware of that you'll save with this packaging compared to bottles? We worked out for us, if you made 10,000 cases of wine and you were to ship it to, say, Brisbane, because we know the figure of freight, it would cost you close to, I think my calculation is around $60,000. So by going to cask, because you've got more volume of wine on a single cask, you're down around forty-two. So you're sort of making close to that $20,000 saving by shipping the same volume, but your configuration in regards to what you're putting on a pallet that's going on a truck is significantly reduced. So that's less fuel, that's less wear and tear on roads, it's less emissions, a number of things. So there's so much research. If people start digging around on cask versus bottles, and I'm not in any way, we have a lot of bottled products, so we're not definitely saying go to all the cask, but bottles are important, but I think casks really have a, a special space at the moment. Ashley Ratcliffe from Ricaterra Farms. Marcus Bradney buys fruit from Mr Ratcliffe and is now supplying him with cask wine packaging for his own line. The Gonzo Wines director says he got out of glass and committed his entire range to cask about five years ago. The idea for cask wines came about wanting to produce wines that could go full side. And the big issue with having wine full side is glass. So glass and water isn't a good mix. So we looked to alternative packaging and the very first wines were in little 500ml stand-up pouches, um, which were aluminium. And then from there we progressed into cask wines. And then it's kind of transitioned away from the pouches and we've kind of got this mantra of making cask wine cool again. What was sort of the um, response from, I guess, the industry initially to launching new wines in casks? It was hard. Launching cask wine in a premium space uh, in a, with premium wine is, is not easy. The public perception of cask wine is still large format, five litres, 10 litres, you know, 25 bucks on a dusty shop down the back of the, you know, the, the local bottle shop. And so, you know, putting these wines out at $65 retail for three litres was a bit of a shock to a lot of people and getting over the stigma of, of the quality and the history of poor quality in cask wine was difficult. But, you know, we're pretty tenacious, so we market pretty hard and Liquid on Lips is the best marketing that we do. So just doing a lot of tastings with a lot of people and seeing the surprise on people's faces when they kind of pull a funny face and they go, oh man, that's actually really delicious. They realise that you can put high quality wine in cask. You mentioned it was really important to get people tasting the wine yourself when you were working through the process of putting um, the wine into the casks. You know, did you have to do anything different to the wine to ensure that it still had the taste that you wanted it to have uh, in a different vessel to glass? One of the issues with cask wines is shelf life once you put them in the cask. So even before they're opened, you've got about a one-year time frame to, to sell through them because the actual bags are quite oxygen permeable. They start to go off quite quickly, which is one of the downsides of cask wine. So the only thing that we need to do differently is just up the preservative a little bit. So we add a little bit extra sulfur than we would normally if we were going to put the wines in bottle. But it's still within a range that's, that's considered very, very low compared to large kind of commercial winery additions. But apart from that, Everything else is exactly the same. The, the, the quality of these wines is exactly the same as when we were putting them in bottles. 
Gonzo Wines Director Marcus Radney speaking with Eliza Balage. Rural news and information on ABC Local Radio Queensland. They're secretive, they sleep nearly all day and can be tricky to spot. I'm, of course, talking about koalas. A federally federally government-funded project is being run by Southern Queensland Landscapes to identify potential koala locations in southwest Queensland. Project officers for Southern Queensland Landscapes, Catherine Best and Oliver Scully, are undertaking the work with the help of two koala detection dogs. They're speaking here with Danielle Lancaster about what they're learning about the Western koala populations. Certainly we know that the Western populations of koalas are quite different in terms of their physiology and behaviour to the Eastern populations because there's such a difference in the habitat that they occupy. Some of the major threats we believe out here would be uh, reduced drought resilience in, along the waterways, such as you know permanent holes being sedimented, stuff like pigs causing erosion and infilling water holes and also predating on koalas in, in times of drought. There's suspicion that there could be chlamydia outbreaks in places like the Warrego. I think it's a, a number of different things that are contributing to a, a decline rather than one set problem. So you're starting to crunch the numbers. You've been out wandering the riverbanks looking for koalas and you've had the koala sniffer dogs out here. How are the numbers? We're really excited to say that we have found evidence of koalas on almost every major waterway out in our region. There's still a few that we haven't looked at yet and we're, we're fairly confident that we'll find them there as well. There's a lot, of, a lot of habitat to cover and they're pretty secretive and sleepy and quiet during the day. So if we can't do it with the dogs, I think we'd be forgiven for not finding them. The dogs really make it a lot more time efficient, gives us a lot more certainty. They're trained to pick up on only very certain smells. And so if we see something and we're not 100% sure, you know, the dog can smell that that's koala and it's not a wallaby or it's not sheep or anything else. And that gives us another level of certainty that you know what we're looking at is koala koala scat instead of another animals is this the first time something like this has been done in the west no there was research done i think it sort of wrapped up about 10 years ago by uq and also back when it was southwest nrm but this has seemed to have been a bit of a die-off event or a decline in population since that research was done and so there's a, a time period where something's happened we're not 100 percent sure what it was what do you hope will come out of all this? Well, I suppose it, once we can sort of re-establish where the, where the hotspots are, where they've really died back, and, yeah, I, I suppose where, where the strongholds are, we can, we can start to look at protecting those populations through on-ground works and hoping to just better our knowledge because without the understanding of what they're doing and how they're, how they're doing in these, these Western countries, it's sort of difficult to make any firm decision on, uh, on any management for them. So definitely a, lot, a big portion of this project is to just re-establish knowledge on the basic ecology of these koalas. And do you hope that there could be more funding to continue more work? Definitely. I think what it shows is the government has indicated that there isn't enough known about these Western koalas and that's why they've funded this research in the first place. And we're hoping that we can find out enough and you know take back a case and say, this is what we found and the evidence stacks up that they are still out here, but they really need more support and ongoing support. And would really love to see both for, for us, you know, loving nature, but also for the community, really love to see these animals persisting. We've heard a lot of people in Charleville and beyond saying, we want koalas back in our backyard. We want to see koalas 
koalas again? How can I reintroduce them? What's happened? Where have they gone? I remember when I used to see them all the time on my way to school or down by the river and I miss that. And there's a real community support, which is really wonderful to see. So I think if we can say that this is important to us, this is important to the animals, but it's also important to our Western communities that we, we protect these koalas. At the end of the day, so many discoveries couldn't be made or so much research couldn't be done without the participation and cooperation of landholders. And, and also a lot of discoveries wouldn't be made without landholders saying, hey, I've noticed something. And so, mm. you know, that's something to be celebrated and acknowledged, you know, the trust that they've shown us to respect the information that they've provided and also to deliver this project in a way that gives back to the community and that's probably something that you know I think is really important about this project is we're not just doing it to save a cute and fluffy animal we're doing this because the community cares about this cute and fluffy animal there is almost an outcry from certain areas of people saying we want more funding we want more support we want more attention put in our western koalas because you know a lot of that is focused on the east and of course those koalas in the east need support too but our western ones are still here so we couldn't deliver as strong a message and put together as strong a case without that trust that we will treat it with respect and it's quite an honour really. That was Catherine Best and Oliver Scully speaking with Danielle Lancaster. It is 14 minutes to one. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. On a quiet red dirt arena at the weekend, the community of Normanton, 500 kilometres north of Mount Isa, hosted Australia's first all-women's rodeo. A sea of pink washed over the crowd with competitors traversing the country to make their mark on the sport. Hailing from Emerald, Emily Hawkins is a wannabe rough rider. She's been waiting for this moment for a decade. I was probably 18. I went and started trying to be a jockey. I was an apprentice jockey for a while got heavy and uh, I was getting bucked off a lot of horses at track work and they, I was like, oh, I want to learn to ride there. There was ones at Buck and there was a school. So I entered a Saddlebronx school and fell in love with this, it as a sport and a craft and there wasn't many women's... There, wasn't, there was women entering but there wasn't many and there wasn't a women's rodeo or a women's event and uh, we've seen a few girls in the States that were riding and... Um, we want those events in Australia for women to ride in and there was a world finals to aim for so it just made sense to chase that. How many years have you been riding then? Uh, I probably started going to those schools at 2017 and it wasn't till 2019-20 where I started ranch bronc riding. Why do you think in Australia there aren't that many women nominating for events like this? There isn't the events to nominate in. I'm sure there'd be plenty of Plenty of women wanting to enter if they had somewhere to go and a little bit of knowledge to go with it. Where did you come from before? I mean, you're in Normanton now, but where are you from? I'm from Emerald, Emerald, central Queensland. Emerald's pretty big rodeo country there. Have you always been heading along to things like this? Did you ever see yourself uh, in the shoots? Not really. I was, I was more into the racing. and um, Emerald's a big roping, roping town and I, I, can't, I can't even roll up a garden hose. <laughs> It started only in 2017. You've been on the US circuit more recently. Tell us about that. It was a great experience getting to go over there and ride with the, with the best in the world and um, represent Australia doing that. Some tough horses over there, so it was a good experience. Why do you think it's important that there's events like what's happening today in Normanton for women that want to have a go at rodeo? Just give them the opportunity to get out there and ride. It's important to have 
something to showcase all the talent that's out there and can show that girls can ride and have the appropriate venue and stock. Do you think events like this show cowgirls are just as tough as the boys getting on these? Yeah, definitely. For women's events like this are important to have for, to show that women can can match up with Bronx and Bulls and show that we are just as tough as boys and have have just as much heart and in my opinion you got to have more heart and more try than a fella just to show that you want to be there and you prove that you can be there. Is it tough because you have to you know you, you're out here to prove something you're not just out here for fun like a lot of people are? Ah, nah it's all still fun yeah it's it's has its has its moments but um yeah once you once you just have events like this to go to, you get all that goes out the window and you just go to compete and have a good time. After this, what's the, what's the dream for women in rodeo in Australia? I'd like to see more. At least one women's event at rodeos, like as a circuit, and have more schools and more opportunities and see, let, let any girl that wants to have a go come and, come and try it. It doesn't have to be a full-time sport, but just see if they want to do it. Like what needs to happen? For that to become the norm, I just think we've got to the ones all of us that are riding got to just keep showing up and supporting the committees that do put on these little events and just keep at it, keep trying, and keep getting on them. Emerald cowgirl Emily Hawkins speaking at the Normanton All Women's Rodeo that took place on Saturday night, the first of its kind in the country. It came together with the help of one local who's been pushing for a greater presence of events for women in the remote golf country. President of Heels and Reels, Sherry Schaefer, uh, told Emily Dobson more. I'm trying to capture a little bit of everything. Okay, so, you know, we've done the ladies' days and then... You know, my husband and I, we run a security company, so I've been going to a lot of the rodeos and I have noticed some of the the girls or the young girls competing in these events, but they're competing with the men. Um, Now, it was something that the rodeo committee, um, the idea, and that, you know, being of what I'm, you know, trying to aim towards, they invited me to get on board to help support and then get that out. I feel it's just a success before we've even kicked it off. Being the first one, do you know what I mean? So you've got to start somewhere. It's got a lot of social attention, you know, the shares, the views, the inquiries. So I feel like, you know, some events, the first one is a great starting point, but then you can shape it from there. So I think I'm, you know, I'm really excited, and I'm sure they are too, to kick this off and see how it goes, and then we can build, build on it each year. Where to from here? For Heels and Reels, for this event, what, what's on the horizon? Well, I feel like this event you could um, grow each year. Yep, um, heels and reels, I suppose anywhere it could lead to. Like I have heaps of ideas, so it really just comes down to um, grants. You know, I'm going to start looking at grants and community buy-in, so, you know, there's no point doing something unless it's something that they really want. So I also make sure that before I do kick off something, I have some conversations in community just to see if it's something that will be well-received or if it's something that they want. And if not, will I just shift my direction to something that they think you know, is more suited to the community. What are you hearing on the ground? What are the girls saying to you as the it's all rolled in, it's finally here after a lot of planning? What are you, what are you being told? Yeah, I'm getting a lot of positive feedback, lots of positive feedback. Um, a lot of ladies asking what's installed for next year, like am I going to set up a calendar so that we're doing something quite regularly? Some people want something every, you know, four to six weeks. I'm not sure if I could do something that regularly. But I would like to sustain what I've done this year. So I've done, you know, the two female events, um, you know, the rodeo for next year. 
this event, yep. what do you want to see it go to? Where, where should it go? What should the norm become after this? Well, I'd like to see that it sets a bit of a trend or a circuit. So, you know, a lot of the races or the rodeos, you know, they follow each other and they start here and they end up there. So I think it would be great to see that, you know, it doesn't have to be that each rodeo is all women, but they have specifically just women categories, you know, so just the women's bronc or the bullock ride. So they're not competing with the men. That's probably my ideal. President of Heels and Reels, Cherie Schaefer, speaking with Emily Dobson. And you can find more on that story on the ABC News website or head to the ABC Northwest Queensland Facebook page. Can't remember the talkback number? Download the ABC Listen app and tap your local ABC radio station to call or message us direct from the app. Join the conversation. Australian agriculture exports to China jumped more than 20% to the record high of $16.6 billion, according to new data. The new report from Rural Bank for the year to June 30, 2023, shows China is by far Australia's Australian farmers' biggest customer, despite tariffs on wine, hay and seafood banning the trade of some products. Rural Bank Head of Agribusiness Development Andrew Smith says wheat exports are behind the latest jump in China trade. China continued to be the largest market for us, but also the largest growth market for the second year in a row. We, we had exports to China rose by just over $3 billion or 20-odd percent. And that's interesting considering that we've had some market closures with our, with our trade with China, but we did have a, a good increase, particularly in terms of wheat exports, which were up about $1.5 billion for the year. And we also saw some growth from beef, almonds and cotton. So despite that rise in, in um, export value, it, it still only rose moderately as a percentage of the total market to 20%. And this has come off where it was back in 2019, which was around 29% of our exports were going to China. So we've obviously had to diversify. And uh, interesting, though, that China has, has come back on those main commodities. China's not traditionally a large exporter of wheat because they do produce a lot of their own wheat. They're usually pretty self-sufficient. But um, with uh, the barley trade coming back online, um, do we do you expect that level of exports into China for grain to, to be maintained? Look, we, we do see another good year for, for grain exports. I think what played out last year as well with the Russia-Ukraine situation was that a number of the Asian countries were looking to uh, import from those closer to them and where they could get security and reliability of supply. So... I think the barley one will be a kicker for us because uh, obviously we've not had that opportunity. We had, I think, just over 300,000 tonnes of barley go from WA in the last two weeks as that market reopened. So that, that that's a real positive for our grain growers. Overall, it looks like grain really led the way with overall Australian exports, which hit a record high. Um, what happened in the, you know what happened over the year with exports? Yeah, look, of the $80 billion that we did export, just on $31 billion was in crops. And uh, that was a result of the, the tremendous uh, seasonal conditions that we had for cropping across the country, particularly in Western Australia, but uh, as well as good uh, average export prices. It was a, an elevated period for, for prices and we had strong demand from around the world for our, our grain. So 
certainly grain uh, in particular wheat has really led the way in terms of the overall index. Dairy, that's one sector that hasn't performed so well in exports. Yes, we've seen that uh, continuing reduction in, in supply from our Australian markets. And when, when we look at that, we had around 8 billion litres of milk produced last year, which which was the lowest total in, in just on 30 years. So that low volume story has, has played out in these numbers. The value certainly was high. We had um, record export prices of just over $7,500 a tonne uh, through that period, but uh, certainly when we, when we look into the numbers, the volume has eased uh, for our dairy sector. And looking at commodities, what happened with livestock, cattle and sheep? The sheep industry did see a reduction in overall, just slight reduction in overall exports, particularly our lamb uh, exports, which were impacted primarily by a reduction in price export values for Australian lamb have come back quite some way over the last 12 months and that was impacted. Our beef as well was just gone flat year on year, but uh, the outlook there, considering uh, some of the demand coming out of the US for our export beef being a bit more positive, we, we should see that at least increase this coming 12 months. And then getting the crystal ball ready, what are we sort of looking at for the year ahead? Are we expecting some changes? Look, we are. We, we've certainly had a good run of, of seasons and prices, but uh, with with particularly the, the cropping sector, we are anticipating our winter wheat and uh, grain crop will be back around 33% year on year, so that that's going to impact our overall uh, level of exports. Rural Bank Head of Agribusiness Development, Andrew Smith, speaking to Emma Field. <laughs> Let's cross to the Roma store sale. David Friend reports numbers are up and there's still demand for quality. Here he is with the interim results. The continuing dry weather increased numbers at Roma to 37.97 head. All regular processors and backgrounders and feedlots were present and active. At this interim report, the market showed stronger demand for the quality lines. Lightweight yielding steers 0 to 200 kilos made to 328 to average 243. Yielding steers returned to the paddock topped at 318 to average 269. Yielding steers 280 to 330 kilos to feed averaged 224, topping at 280. Yielding steers 330 to 400 kilos to feed made to 292 to average 285. Growing steers 500 to 600 kilos to feed averaged 246, topping at 250. Bullocks topped at 236 to average 231. Heavy bulls made to 2.30 to 2.40 cents per kilo. Heifers and cows to be sold. This has been David Friend for the MLA National Livestock Reporting Service. And that's all we have time for on the Queensland Country Hour today. Thanks very much for your company. I'm Madeleine Lukoska. It's just about to hit news time, so it's almost one o'clock. Uh, don't forget you can check the ABC Rural website for any of the stories that you've heard today. Have a great day. I'll talk to you later.